Fantastic. Well, well, thank you very much. And as, as Pauline says, it's, it's uh, helpful that food taxes are going up the political agenda more and more so. Um, and we're getting new food taxes being introduced around the world um, in different areas. And we're just beginning to get online some of the evidence about how effective those food taxes have been. And so that's really, I thought, kind of the impetus of this presentation, which is really to kind of like look at a situation like health-related food taxes and the challenges of looking at how effective health-related food taxes can be. Because really when you're doing health-related food taxes, you're at the population level, you're doing an intervention which is going to affect everyone in the population. Kind of difficult in the kind of classic kind of uh, medical intervention paradigm um, to kind of evaluate the effectiveness of health-related food taxes in a kind of classic uh, randomised controlled trial method. So you can't really get the kind of best quality level of evidence to look at health-related food taxes. And I'll go over that in my talk about why that might be. So really the talk is kind of inspired about well, what do you do in a situation where you've got a potential policy option which can be potentially uh, really worthwhile in terms of improving the population health, but the level of evidence to support the introduction of that policy uh, is not quite as robust as the evidence that you perhaps would uh, be basing your decisions in terms of whether you're going to um, invest in certain medical treatments. What do you do when the, the evidence isn't as robust? So I'm going to go through what evidence does support uh, the introduction of health-related food taxes, where do you get the evidence from, we'll talk about how shaped that evidence is. Uh, this, this slide, I think it's a good setting scene. Um, it's all sorts of, this slide appears whenever people are talking about health-related food taxes, but I think it's a good one anyway. This is a quote from Adam Smith, that kind of bastion of free market economics, who says, Sugar, rum and tobacco are commodities which are nowhere necessities of life, which have become objects of almost universal consumption, and which are therefore extremely proper subjects of taxation, which I think is good because I think uh, sugary drinks taxes are quite often said, well, we can't go near that because we just let the market be the market and let the free market be. And here you've got father of economics saying, yep, sugar, an extremely proper subject of taxation. So quite a powerful uh, uh, advocate of health-related food taxes. So what am I going to do? Okay, right, well, first I'm going to, uh, first half, really, uh, is talk about the political landscape, who's doing what, where, with health-related food taxes, particularly focusing on what we're doing in the UK, okay, and then looking kind of globally, worldwide, what is happening. Um, then I'll be a bit of a section on well, what do we expect health-related food taxes to do? Because essentially when you put a, an intervention uh, at a population level that's not targeted on individuals, you're not focusing on specific individuals who have perhaps got a poor diet and you're just trying to improve their diet, whatever you do in an intervention at the population level, you can have all sorts of unintended side effects. It's going to affect uh, areas outside of the health uh, regime and it can go off in different sort of directions. So we'll just talk a little bit more about how do we expect these health-related food taxes to improve health and kind of try and unpick that a little bit. And then I'll go through what evidence we have about the effectiveness of health-related food taxes, looking at the different kinds of study designs that have been looked at to, to, uh, to, to look at the evidence, to, to, to look at the effectiveness of changes in food price. And I'll just do some brief conclusions. So first of all, just to say, in the UK we don't have health-related food taxes, but that's not to say that we don't have differential food taxes. We've got a very strange system in the UK at the moment, where there's a whole bunch of foods that are taxed, there's a whole bunch of foods that aren't taxed, and how some foods have ended up being taxed and some not is very opaque, and the system is most confusing and unusual. Um, the original intention of the way we tax foods in the UK was it was supposed to be that luxury foods would be taxed, 
and staple foods wouldn't be taxed. When I'm saying tax here, these are foods, the ones that are underlying the foods that are taxed, they all get VAT put on top of them. When you buy them, you're paying VAT on them. The ones that are not taxed, they're ones that are VAT free, VAT exempt. But over time, this kind of luxury staple kind of definition has morphed into something that's extremely peculiar. My particular favourite on this slide is that chocolate biscuits are taxed, iced biscuits are not taxed. I don't know why in the slightest iced biscuits are considered a staple and chocolate biscuits are not. But that's our current system. So foods are taxed in the UK, and there are a few advocates who say, well, we should readdress this situation and try and change it so that you get the differential aspect of which are taxed and which are not taxed based on health reasons, rather than this kind of arbitrary uh, distinction. But it's a bit difficult to kind of plough into that landscape. Um, and a few years ago, a couple of years ago, George Osborne suggested that we should change the taxation system. One of the changes was he was going to suggest that, that pasties should be taxed. Currently, Cornish pasties sit over here on the side of shouldn't be taxed, and he was saying, well, perhaps we should tax them, along with a whole different raft of, of changes to the food taxation system. And it was jumped on, and it was basically a political nightmare, and Dave Cameron and, and George Osborne had to be quickly photographed eating pasties to show that they are, were down with the common people who are all eat pasties all the time and would never put up with a pasty tax. And, uh, and Ed Balls and Ed Miliband queue up outside Greg's to get their picture taken saying, we do not support a pasty tax. And indeed, it caused a U-turn. So just to say that getting stuck in with trying to change taxes on food has got its own kind of political hurdles, which are kind of difficult to jump over. Okay, but more and more people are talking about food taxation and health-related food taxation, and one of the reasons why they are is because at the moment, most Western uh, governments haven't got any money. Okay, since 2008, they've got the financial crisis. Any kind of system which might bring in some revenue to in the UK to kind of bring down the, the deficit is something which is being seriously considered. So um, when we did, when we started out doing uh, research on health-related food taxes, which was in 2006, uh, whenever there was a kind of modelling study which looked at doing health-related food taxes, usually what they'd do is they'd do a, a revenue-neutral scenario. So they'd say, okay, any money that you generate through taxes on, say, saturated fat and sugar, um, should be ploughed into subsidising fruit and vegetables. The idea being that, that it's politically unacceptable to introduce kind of a new tax to kind of uh, actually generate some revenue. Whereas now, the revenue is an important outcome of these modelling studies. It's just that this is a real positive thing that the, the shepherd could actually generate some revenue. And this is just an example of how much money potentially could be made. So in the UK at the moment, we get about 4% of total tax revenue just from tobacco and alcohol excises. So just like focusing on those kind of health-related taxes on tobacco and alcohol generates a hell of a lot of uh, tax revenue for the exchequer to, 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 to spend. Uh, and in Denmark, we'll come back to this Danish example, uh, for one year, the, the Danes introduced a, fat on saturated, sorry, a tax on saturated fat uh, in foods. And in that one year, the saturated fat tax produced more revenue than beer duties and spirit duties bit less than wine duties. So these are, you know, if you start taxing the food system, because everyone's got to eat, even if you put the tax on relatively low, everyone's buying food, it can generate a hell of a lot of money. And that makes George Osborne particularly happy. So, uh, so this is kind of an area where perhaps you'd be thinking, hmm, maybe this is something we need to get involved in. The political argument as well about why you potentially be thinking about introducing health-related food taxes is an idea about, well, perhaps it's about rebalancing the marketplace. Uh, so this, is, this slide is about um, the relative cost of different food groups. <coughs> this is in the US, this isn't UK data, but it's going to be similar in the UK. The black line there is the consumer price index, so if all those lines were just uh, on top of the black line, then it would just basically be saying that 
relative foods have stayed the same price over time. But what's happened from the 1980s to 2000 is essentially fruit and vegetables have gone up in, in price over that time. And sugar and sweets, and particularly carbonated drinks, so uh, sugar sweetened beverages, have gone down in price. So there's an argument to say, well, if we want to try and get back to the situation that, as it was back in the late 70s, then you've got to sort of try and get involved in the marketplace to redress that by uh, changing the prices artificially. So who's suggesting that this might be a good idea? Who's the advocate for change? Well, in the UK, there's a few different NGOs that are calling for it. So we've got uh, Sustain, which is the uh, Alliance for Better Food and Farming, suggests that, uh, that uh, we should be, uh, recommend that we should introduce a sugary drinks tax in the UK at 20p per litre. Uh, and also the Academy of Royal Medical Colleges suggests the same thing, so they're, they're advocates for introducing sugary drinks taxation. Plaid Cymru in Wales have got a manifesto pledge that, um, that, that if they are elected they'll uh, introduce a sugary drink levy up to 20p per litre in order to employ more doctors in Wales. And the Liberal Democrats also, because these are a party that are famous for keeping their promises, um, suggest that they, at their 2012 party conference they had a motion about whether they uh, should have a consultation on fiscal measures such as taxation of heavily sugary drink, and it was passed at party conference. So um, Liberal Democrats vote on their policies and these right. So it's Liberal Democrat policy as well if they were in government, at least to have a consultation. And what's happening worldwide? Well, more and more countries are looking at health-related food taxes. So, uh, there's just a few examples from around the world. One that's been introduced fairly recently is uh, a tax, 10% tax on sugary drinks in Mexico. Mexico's got higher consumption of sugary drinks per person than even the USA. It's got really sky-high sugary drink consumption. Um, and that's been in place for about a year now in Mexico, and there's informal reports, and I'll have some slides a bit later on, suggesting that it's been a success, but it hasn't been kind of formally uh, evaluated yet. In France, they have a tax, again, well, not actually on sugar-sweetened drinks, just on any sweetened drinks. So Diet Coke and Coke receive the same tax in, in France. I've got seven, seven cents per litre. I think partly surprising to some people is that USA have got a hell of a lot of uh, sugary drinks taxes already. Um, in the US, so 23 states have a tax on sugar sweetened drinks between about 1 and 8%. These are all basically revenue raising taxes. They're not been suggested that they've been put in place for health purposes. But there's more and more moves within the US to actually uh, put in higher levels of taxation for health purposes. And Denmark had a tax, that was the tax I mentioned that they had for a year, on saturated fat, but it has since been repealed in Denmark. And we'll come back to that. So as I say, in, in, in the US, there's a kind of bit of a um, momentum behind sugary drinks uh, taxation. So back in 2012, um, the city of Richmond um, voted for whether, whether or not to introduce a sugary drinks taxation and was heavily defeated in 2012. There was a lot of uh, food industry lobbying um, to try and uh, prevent the introduction of the tax and it was voted down in 2012. But in 2014, at the uh, midterm elections just gone by, Berkeley in, in uh, Berkeley in, in California had the, uh, a similar sort of tax put up for, for vote, and again, it was heavy lobbying from the food industry, but this time they got a lot of uh, money from public health NGOs kind of put in, they got lobbying from the other side as well. And the vote was passed with 75% of the vote, so it kind of suggests, at least in this kind of one small area, that it could be uh, a, a good political move as well, the, the, the people behind the, uh, the, the, the tax. 
And also, uh, in terms of kind of global introduction of health-related food taxes, uh, the UN have stated that they think the introduction of food taxes and subsidies to improve a healthy diet are one of their kind of good buys, best buys for, uh, for uh, tackling NCDs when they had their high-level meeting on NCDs in September 2011. So why was the Danish fat tax revealed? Well, history of the Danish fat tax is quite an interesting one. It was uh, introduced in 2011 virtually unanimously. And part of the, uh, the lobbying at the time of introducing it was it was going to be a, a good measure for public health grounds. They were saying, um, we need this, this tax to be bought in to try and move people away from saturated fat in, in butter, move people off to margarine and stuff, in order to improve people's health by lowering cholesterol and things like that. And it was roundly agreed upon and it was introduced in 2011. Just over a year later, about 18 months later, it was unanimously agreed upon in the Danish Parliament to abolish the saturated fat tax. And in the debate, um, health wasn't mentioned at all. So this is before they had an evaluation of the health effects of the saturated fat tax. Uh, they didn't know what it was doing in terms of saturated fat consumption levels in Denmark, but it was, it was repealed on the grounds, well, it was on a number of different grounds. Um, one of the prime ones that was suggested was that it was increasing cross-border trade, which suggested that uh, people in Denmark would be driving to Sweden or to Germany to buy their butter because it would be cheaper across the border. Uh, again, it's pretty much evidence-free in the debate, but it was moved to, uh, to, to repeal it in 2012. Right, so that's kind of what different places are doing around the world. So what do we expect uh, health-related food taxes to do? Well, this is, from, this is a, uh, a kind of figure from a, um, a recent review, a current obesity report, uh, headed up by a guy called Oliver Mitten, who used to work with us in Oxford, and has done quite a lot of modelling work around health-related food taxes. And what he's suggesting is, okay, here's a kind of straightforward kind of mechanism about what you'd expect a health-related food tax to do. With the idea being that, essentially, you start with a tax, and of course, when you apply a tax, it changes the price of targeted foods. If you change the price of targeted foods, then you change the purchase of that targeted food. But also, if you change the purchase of a certain targeted food, you also change the purchase of other foods. Now, this is about foods being substitutes or complements. Okay, right? So, it's, um, so if you change the price of... Coca-Cola, you'd expect Diet Cola to increase sales as people substitute from one to another. Um, but you might get also kind of complementary situations. So if you tax um, roast beef, then you might get a reduction in sales of horseradish sauce, you know, things that kind of go well together. So you get these kind of, the effects that you have on uh, the targeted foods here, that's kind of, that can be measured in, in what we call own price elasticities which is how much you change purchase of the current food compared to how much the change in price is. And the change on other kind of foods, they're called cross-price elasticities. So how much do you affect consumption of other products or purchases of other products uh, if you change the price of a different food? This change in purchases of food leads to a different change in consumption of foods. Obviously, if you consume different foods, you consume different nutrients, which affect your medical risk factors for disease, which ultimately affect your health. So this is the kind of pathway to go down here. And the idea is that people's sensitivity to changes in the amount that they purchase and then uh, changes in their health are modified by certain effect modifiers, so depending on how old you are, your income and so on. So this is around the fact that uh, poor people are likely to react to um, changes in food prices more than rich people because they're more price sensitive. Um, and, yeah, and, and fat people, there's some evidence that fat people may react differently to thin people and things like this. 
So this is his outline of what we expect to happen. I think there's a few things missed out on here though, and I think the pattern is much more complicated when you introduce a new tax. And actually there is evidence now beginning to come through from introduction of the French tax and from looking at what happened in Denmark to see that there is, there is uh, different things going on here than just simply uh, this kind of linear kind of mechanism. So for example, one thing that the um, food industry can do to react to an introduction of a tax is to say, well, I don't want my food to be taxed, I don't want it to be put into that camp. So it can drive reformulation, and that reformulation might be as a reaction directly to the new tax being put in place, to say, okay, well, if you've got a tax on uh, saturated fat over a certain level in the food, which is how the Danes kind of introduce their saturated fat, you can reformulate your food, remove some of the saturated fat from the food, uh, just in general, just to kind of move it out. This kind of mechanism as a kind of reaction food industry to a proposed change in legislation is what we're seeing has happened uh, when traffic light labels are introduced in the UK to foods. Um, food industry are very worried about getting red labels on their food, so one of the effects of traffic light labelling has been to reformulate the actual uh, foodstuffs in order to just kind of get away from having those marks. And of course, if you reformulate them, that's going to affect consumption of nutrients directly. Another thing is that the mechanism in terms of changing people's purchases isn't just through price. It's about people's reaction to the fact that they're being told that this food is being taxed. Okay, so you get a kind of change in social norms, if you like. They're saying, okay, well, you're telling me that, that Coca-Cola is bad by sticking this tax on. So there's a demonization effect of applying a tax, tax which probably has an additional effect over and above the, uh, the, just the effect of the change in price. I've got some kind of interesting slides later on to kind of demonstrate how that, that might take place. The other thing, and I think this is absolutely really interesting this point, but, uh, but we've got very little evidence about what's actually happening here because it's very difficult to measure well um, food purchases and food <coughs> consumption. But essentially if you're talking about small changes in purchase of taxed foods, one way that people can react is essentially to kind of reduce their food waste or change their food waste accordingly. So you might well change people's purchases of taxed foods. They might buy slightly less of something of a product, but they might just use that, that product then more efficiently, use more of it, they might reduce their food waste. So actually this change in terms of purchased foods and uh, going into change in consumption of food is not very clear cut, okay? And that obviously then affects some of your uh, suggestions about what's gonna happen in terms of health. The other interesting thing happens at this point, which is that when a new tax is, is put in place, the kind of presumption is that all the food industry will react, react in the same way to put the entire of the tax onto their product and pass it onto the consumer. But there's evidence coming through now from both Denmark and from France that this is, is not the case at all. Uh, and it can go both ways. Some retailers will uh, take a hit on their profits and so only pass on some of the tax to the uh, consumers. Some retailers will take the opportunity to increase their profits and, and, and pass on more than 100% of the tax to the consumers. In saturated, uh, sorry, in saturated fat. In Denmark, what they found when the saturated fat tax was put in place was there, there was one of the reactions was an increase in the use of um, discounter supermarkets. So one of the ways that people reacted was instead of saying, well, I'll, I'll, I'll stop eating butter and start eating uh, margarine, I'll move from... Um, I'll move from buying my food from Waitrose, say, to go down to a, an Aldi or a Lidl. And actually the discounters um, took the opportunity of that to, to add on more than the pass on. They passed on more than 100% of the tax. So you've got this differential effect. In the, in the more top-end supermarkets, they passed on less than 100% of the tax. In the lower-end ones, they passed on more than 100%. Because they knew they could get away with it. In fact, they did. So there's all these different things that are happening when you apply a new tax. 
And then you've got to say, well, how do we, affect, how do we expect the um, individuals are going to react to a change in food tax? What are we hoping that they're going to do in a kind of ideal world? So this is my really unsubtle slide kind of capturing uh, people's dietary behaviour where I've said, okay, let's, let's imagine this is a normal situation where you, uh, an individual goes out and half of the food they buy is healthy and the other half of the food they buy is unhealthy and there's nothing in between. This is my really unsubtle slide about what can happen. Um, the idea is, if you stick a tax on food, this is the perfect scenario, this is what people think is going to happen, right? They imagine, well, let's stick a tax on the unhealthy food and that will make people react by saying, oh, this has got a good price, I don't want to buy this as much. So they reduce the, uh, the purchases over here. They say, well, I've got to substitute it with something, so they go and buy healthy foods instead. Uh, end up spending about the same amount of money on their weekly shop, buying the same amount of food, but they've ended up with a more healthy diet because they've bought more healthy foods than unhealthy foods. That's the kind of ideal scenario that people want to happen. But it's not the only way that people can react. People can react by basically saying, oh, look, the price of my ice cream has gone up. I'll, uh, I'd better buy a few less carrots and a few less apples so I can afford to continue buying my ice cream. So you can get this effect where actually you just reduce uh, purchases of healthy foods and actually have a little effect on unhealthy. And this is all about cross-price elasticities between the two. Oops. Or you can get this effect where basically people say, uh, okay, my price of ice cream has gone up. I'm still going to buy ice cream. I'm going to have to spend less money on uh, computer games and mobile phones and baseball paraphernalia. Um, so when you look at the kind of the evidence for health-related food taxes, almost all of the evidence is based on data that's collect on, collected just purely on the food budget and not looking at the wider budget of the household budget, right? So you only get these kind of these elasticity effects and having to kind of try and unpick and say, well, how do people react to that change in price? It always assumes that people have got a constant budget for food and they're not going to change that. It's not going to expand. It's not going to contract. It's a simplification, and it's a big problem, I think, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the health economics literature, the food economics literature. And this is similarly what, what happens if you stick a subsidy on foods. Well, the idea is if you reduce the price of apples, people buy more apples, and then they say, great, I've got more apples, I don't need as many Mars bars. And so that's the ideal situation. But, of course, what they could do is they say, oh, I've saved you know, a couple of quid on my apples, I can go and buy an extra Mars bar now. I've got more money, that's how they could react, and that's obviously not the situation you want to get. Or again, people could just react by saying, well, great, I'll, I'll take those savings and spend it on something else, and not react in the slightest. So you don't change their, uh, their, their food purchase in the slightest, you just give people a bit more pounds in their pockets, and they uh, go on sticking. Right, so that's kind of what we expect behaviour to change, and what we expect a health-related food tax to happen. So now I'm going to go through some of the evidence of what actually happens when food prices change, either by introduction of tax, or just through natural fluctuations in food price, or in some cases when I'm looking at experimental studies, by um, actually not real changes in food price, by kind of theoretical changes, just to see how, how much people are willing to buy uh, different foods. So I'm going to go through these different stages so you can get an idea of the kind of study designs that have been used to look at this. Um, and, and we'll move on from that. So there's been a, a review of the evidence of effectiveness uh, of people's reactions to changes in food price looked at in experimental studies. And the review, broadly, the, uh, the um, conclusions, uh, there's a lot of evidence that when you change the price for food, 
then you get a big impact on the purchases of that particular targeted food, and you get uh, a lot of varied kind of impact on other non-targeted foods. So there is this kind of substitution behaviour. People don't just change by just focusing on the food uh, that's being taxed. Um, usually when it's ex uh, explored in an experimental study, they usually have changing food prices, one intervention, alongside other interventions, like a, a, a provision of food education or changing labelling or something like that. Under those scenarios, always food price comes out as being a really strong lever for changes um, in effect in comparison to the other interventions. So it usually comes out to basically say uh, food price is potentially a really powerful lever to get people to change their behaviour, much more powerful than perhaps some of the other interventions in this area. And again, there's some evidence that elasticities are moderated by different individual level characteristics. Although this last point here, um, one of my PhD students has just done a systematic review to look more into this and say what actually is the evidence in experimental studies that you get different price elasticities, different uh, price sensitivities for different people uh, different groups, and actually the evidence is extremely limited. It's, it's very weak evidence, to say the least, that there's actually different change by different groups in the experimental literature. I'll show some other stuff in the observational data soon, which suggests perhaps otherwise. So this is the kind of study design that's used. Okay? So I've got a couple of studies here that I just want to go through and, and give you the example and then, then say what the kind of obvious kind of limitations are of them. Okay? So this study over here, this one on the left, um, this was a choice experiment that was done in the US where they had 32 children and what they did was they gave them a questionnaire, a kind of a, a data sheet and it said, here you go, here are 12 different foods on here and broadly six of them were healthy choices and six of them were unhealthy choices and they each had a price on them and they said to the kids, imagine we give you $5, how are you going to spend this $5 on food purchases? And then they say, do it again, spend that $5 uh, under a scenario where we doubled the price of the healthy food and then do it again in a scenario where we double the price of the unhealthy food. Okay? And what they find is, when they double the price of the, uh, the healthy food, then the choices of the healthy food drops by about half, and um, there's a small drop, there's a small drop in uh, unhealthy food. So there's a small bit of where people react by saying, oh, I need to save some money for my apples, so I'll buy less Mars bars. If you do the opposite, and you increase the price of the unhealthy food uh, by half, then there's a greater... Uh, change in unhealthy people are more likely to substitute away from the healthy foods than they are then away from the unhealthy foods. Suggesting that you get this kind of substitution effect in all this. There's loads of different, I mean I picked this one as an example, but there's loads and loads of examples from the literature which have looked at people's willingness to buy foods at different kind of price levels. Uh, based on this kind of theoretical construct, in similar sort of ways of doing it, where essentially it's not people's real money and they're not making real purchases, and what's more, they usually have a kind of artificial constraint. So here the kids have $5, and they were saying, if you've got $5, you must spend this $5. How are you going to spend this $5? And they weren't allowed to say, okay, well, I'm going to react to this price change by spending $7.50, for example. They've got to stick within there. So I think these results are really limited and tell us very little about what would happen if you start <coughs> introducing health-related food taxes. Um, the prime reason why these are not that useful, I think, is essentially, unless you get people to actually put their money where their mouth is and actually buy the products and actually look at real purchasing behaviour, it's not going to tell you all that much about how people would really behave, particularly around when it comes to purchases of foods. Um, we know people lie about what it is, that their reasons for buying different foods. We know they like researchers to try and please them. And if you ask people and you sit them down and you say, okay, uh, what's your biggest priorities uh, when you're trying to buy food? They'll all say, well, my biggest priority is health. And 
health of my children. It's extremely important that I have very healthy foods. To then do the same thing, but you follow them around the supermarket and ask them as they're making their decisions in the supermarket, why are you buying that one? Why are you buying that one? Health is right now at the bottom of the list. It's about price, it's about the fact that they've eaten it before, it's about taste. Okay, so unless people are actually making the purchases, just be sceptical of, of, of the results. This is another example of a kind of study uh, where this is about fruit purchases uh, in, in a single cafeteria. Mike, you might recognise the next slide. Come we go. Uh, <laughs> um, this is a, a single cafeteria where what they did is they, they looked at just within that cafeteria how many pieces of fruit have been sold uh, across a, um, uh, a time span. In the middle part here, during the intervention, they halved the price of the fruit and you see a, a boost in the amount of total fruit sales. And then the follow-up here, they drop it back down to normal and they see it replaces it back down to normal. Uh, and so they basically conclude, okay, great, so uh, if you halve the price of fruit, people are going to buy much more of it. Which is great, this is real fruit purchases here. And so this is kind of a, a, a real kind of result of, of genuinely increasing purchases because of um, changes in price. <coughs> Problem with this though, some of the limitations here is one is you don't get any kind of cross price effect. You've got no idea how people are also spending their money on cakes over this same time period, or at least you don't from these results. You can measure that from these kind of studies, but you don't have here. You don't have, but a kind of bigger kind of drawback here is you don't have any kind of idea about how this changes in apple consumption, because you've got no individual level data here, it's just cafeteria level, whether that change in fruit consumption actually genuinely turns into an increase in fruit consumption, okay? What could be happening here is people could be saying, oh, have you heard that there's cheap apples at this place? So, so this could be an increase in sales, just generally in the, in, the, in the place, so rather than individuals within there buying more apples, it could be more people buying apples. It could also be that people are choosing this particular place to buy all their apples in a week rather than buying their apples, say, at Tesco. They go, oh, great, I'll stock up on my week's apples because they're cheap here. So they might not end up eating more apples in total. It might just be a kind of sparking sales. So that's a kind of limitation of this approach. Now, this is the slide that uh, Mike has seen before because uh, it's something that he did. Uh, but I think it's great news results, so I always include these. This is a very similar kind of... Um, a set of results that was collected on our own campus up in Hennington, the Old Road campus. Um, and basically, I just wanted to introduce this because this is kind of has uh, a little bit of evidence or a little bit of indication towards how people react not only to price changes, but kind of uh, changes in social norms and the idea of changing prices of food. So what happened here is up on our campus, we've got a bunch of different buildings and the different buildings have different cafeterias. Um, but the workforce kind of know each other, so we interact with each other, so in, in our building we know the people in the different buildings, we chat with each other and things like that. This was a student project uh, up in our campus where one of the cafeterias in our campus, the Rosemary Rue building, uh, did exactly what we just seen in the previous study, where they uh, basically halved the price of fruit uh, for, for a couple of weeks and then saw what would happen in terms of change of sales of fruit within that cafeteria. And they also had data on uh, a different cafeteria on the same campus where they didn't change the price of fruit, okay? They just had just normal price of fruit. This was supposed to be the control cafeteria. And what you found was in the Rosemary where the, uh, the price of fruit halved, consumption massively increased. It went from like purchases of about 15 a week up to about 80 a week, okay? This, I think, is an example. Basically, food prices went, fruit prices went from 45p to 20p. I think this is more of an indication of how poor the academics are that work for the... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> my October place. We're also public health researchers. Maybe we're a bit more inclined towards uh, uh, an intervention like this. But this is an unusually large effect size for such an intervention. But still, it uh, shows the kind of very clearly what's happening in this cafeteria is while the food price has gone down, people are eating more apples, eat more fruit, and then when it comes back to normal, they go back to normal. The interesting bit here for me is the pink line. Now, in this pink line, there wasn't any change in food pr fruit price at all in the Welcome Trust building. But what happened, presumably, we don't know for definite, but this is my assessment of what happened, because they obviously get this little mini peak at the second half of the week. These are people who are talking to people in uh, uh, the Rosemary Room, or perhaps just going into the Rosemary Room and noticing that the price of fruit has gone down. These are people who think that the price of fruit has gone down in their cafeteria. It hasn't, hasn't changed at all. And then you get a boost to sales here. It's really interesting because it's actually a day later. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that. Yes, yeah, so it takes a little bit of time to kind of trickle through. That, yeah, mm -hmm. so people may have become aware that the sale mm -hmm. is going on. Yeah. So, I think this is a really interesting slide because I think what it demonstrates is potentially the fact that it's not just about food price change, it's about people's thinking there's a food price change that's kind of driving kind of differences going on. Right, okay, so this is. Um, this is good data from an actual randomised control trial. So there's been a, a, this is a randomised control trial in New Zealand. It's called the SHOP trial. Now what they did was um, they randomised people whether to receive a discount on healthy food. The healthy food here was essentially fruit and vegetables and like skimmed milk and things like that. And if you're in the trial then you've got vouchers to get 12.5% off this healthy food. 12.5% was pitched because that's the level of VAT in New Zealand, or at least it was when they were doing the trial. Um, and what they found is if you did that, so you randomised to get this kind of discount, then you increased the amount of healthy food that was bought in the intervention group over the six months it was put in place. So it's a statistically significant increase. Uh, and what's more, basically nothing happened with unhealthy food. There didn't seem to be much substitution away. So you increased the amount of healthy food they bought, but it didn't have any impact. They, they weren't saying, okay, well, great, I've got more apples, I don't need these Mars bars anymore. Didn't seem to be any impact there. Uh, and what's more, after 12 months, so the intervention was only in place for 6 months, but then they, they followed them up after 12 months to see if there was any lasting impact. And there was borderline significant impact, so maybe there was still, still some increased consumption of healthy foods. So this is good, this is good proper randomised data with real food, and this is real foods bought in a supermarket, so whilst this could represent, it could have the same effect as the cafeteria where you say, well they might be buying more, but perhaps they're just buying less elsewhere, they're getting all their healthy food from here. Probably less likely, because you're in a supermarket and pretty much, uh, you know, the vast majority of food purchases are made in a supermarket these days, so it's probably uh, safe against that regard. So this is a really good mechanism to look at, see what happens in terms of introducing a subsidy on foods, does it actually influence people's purchasing behaviour? And with a positive result that it does, you subsidise healthy foods, you get an increase in consumption of healthy foods, or at least an increase in purchases. But my point here is, this is great for subsidies, but you couldn't do a similar sort of study for food taxes. So say if you wanted to say, let's replicate this shop study, but have a look and see if a tax on sugary drinks is going to have a, a, a reduction in sugary drink sales. Let's actually look at this in a randomised trial. The problem is, if you set it up in exactly the same way, then your intervention group has got to suddenly have an increase in the price of their sugary drinks. Now, one, that's questionable whether you get that past ethics, an ethics committee. I think you probably would get it past an ethics committee, because it's, I, I think probably it's borderline, but you probably would get it through. Um, but two, essentially what you then have is you'd have people inconvenienced by being in the city. Of, well, they have to know that their food price has gone up. You can't kind of deceive them in some sort of way, because... Um, 
otherwise the effect is not going to work. It's only working through the fact that people know that the price has gone up. And they'll just know that they can just go and buy their sugary drinks from elsewhere, that outside of the study supermarket. Uh, and so you're just going to lose the kind of effectiveness. It's just, it's simply, it's a, it's a mechanism that you can't really test in a randomised control trial like this. So in the absence of that kind of randomised experimental data, what do you do? What do we have? Well, one thing you do is look at natural experiments. And you want to see something that's kind of something maybe like this, right? So this is data on tobacco consumption. And this is US data. These are all, um, this, this red line here is normalised uh, price. This is all in 2007 dollars. So this is kind of, you know, inflation adjusted price, um, which shows, you know, uh, as, as price went down, consumption of cigarettes went up. And as price goes up, consumption of cigarettes come down. Pretty good kind of uh, evidence there to suggest that cigarette consumption is strongly linked with price. But your, your issue here is you've got a, a bottom line level of about, what, $1.40, $1.50, say, for a pack of, pack of fags in the early 1980s. And it goes up to $4.25. That's like about 200% increase in price. The taxes that we're talking about in food and are suggested might be introduced on sugary drinks are in the range of about 10% to 20%. They're tiny, so you've got this kind of problem of noise to signal, signal to noise ratio. Okay? Uh, here you've got a really loud, loud, large signal, so you can pick up um, the, the, the effect, you kind of get around the kind of randomness. In food, you've got the added problem, you've got a lower signal, and you've also got more noise, because it's a bloody nightmare trying to measure what it is that people eat. And people purchase, because there's loads and loads of uh, bias and under-reporting when you're trying to measure what it is that people consume. Um, so here's an example that, that we looked at when we looked at taxing sugary drinks. Um, down here, this is the, um, the gold standard uh, for measuring what it is that people consume in the UK. This is called the National Diet and Nutrition Survey. It's kind of the gold standard of measuring true consumption of people's diet. And the National Diet and Nutrition Survey suggests that average consumption of sugary drinks uh, in the UK is at about 137 millilitres. We then compared it to what the sugary drink industry report as total sales uh, within the industry when they're reporting their taxes, they have to say how much we actually sell. And that works out as 478 millilitres per person per day. That's like a threefold difference. We can't measure this stuff. There's loads of noise around the measurement and the signal's quite weak. So you have all these problems of doing natural experiments. But still some have been tried and some effects have been shown. I'm going to skip this slide, that's about Ireland. So as I say, um, some taxes recently have been kind of put in place and there's emerging evidence looking at this kind of natural experiment to try and get an idea of, of has there actually been an effect. As the taxes have got bigger, you're getting kind of a, a, more of a chance of observing an effect. This is data about saturated fat. This has, I, I know it says, please do not quote up here, since this has been out, this has actually been published now. So this is in peer-reviewed journals now. This is a researcher called Sine Smed uh, in Copenhagen, who's looked at the influence of the uh, Danish saturated fat. And what they've got is panel data on, on people's purchases, and they just looked at consumption uh, of saturated fat from all the different purchases all lined up uh, to see kind of trends. And the grey line here is kind of completely unsmooth data. It's just how people's purchases of saturated fat changes over time. And then they've stripped out seasonality with the green line, and then they've stripped out more bits and pieces about hoarding and everything like this. And they reckon their best line here is this red line, and they suggest that after the tax was introduced, there was a decrease in saturated fat of about 6%. Only a short-term change, they don't have any data on long-term changes in saturated fat consumption. So suggesting that the tax, which was led at about 20%, resulted in about 6% reduction in saturated fat. That peak here is supposed to be due with hoarding. We're going on buying butter before the introduction of the tax.
And we've got some data that none of this is peer-reviewed. This is just stuff that's kind of being published in, um, in newspapers and kind of from crude kind of sales data, but still it's kind of emerging data, where um, in France they introduced the tax on... Um, so it was on, basically it was on fizzy drinks, not on, on, on non-fizzy drinks. The, the, the red one's non-fizzy, the blue's fizzy. Uh, and they showed these are sales over time. This is percent change in sales in different years. And when they introduced the tax, they did get a 4% fall in fizzy drink sales and resilient in, in non-fizzy drinks. So again, evidence that there is a kind of effect there. It's emerging evidence. In Mexico, they're, they're starting to produce results that suggests that when they put in the uh, tax in the first quarter, there was uh, a 10% decline in purchases of, of, of sugary drink beverages um, and an increase in purchases of untaxed beverages, which suggests this isn't just a secular trend of people just drinking less, less food, drinking less drink. Uh, so diet sodas went up in consumption. So again, emerging data, but this is, this is long before it's been peer-reviewed or anything. So I wanted to say something about observational data, and I'm moving on. So when I'm talking about observational data, this is uh, generally data from okay, uh, a couple of places. So um, either from repeat cross-sectional surveys or from panel data, right? Where basically you've got people's... You see how people are buying food and you know what the cost of that food is. And so you can see how people change their purchases in reactions to small fluctuations in price. And this isn't about introducing taxes, it's just the fact that prices change all the time. So you can observe how people uh, change their, their, their consumption patterns. And it's quite powerful because it allows you to do estimates of price elasticities for different population subgroups and things like that. But essentially what they do in an assessment like this They'll have like one data point, okay, right? So this is this is how price elasticity estimates are produced, okay, right? Um, so what they want to say, so say you've got a, this this might be Coca-Cola again, okay? So this is Coca-Cola. They might have one data that Coca-Cola went slightly up in price, so this is the change in price axis, and as a result, purchases of Coca-Cola went slightly down. So they have one data point in their in their uh, in their data. And this res responds to okay, a 2% increase in price resulting in a 1.6% decrease in sales. And then you can work out what's called a price elasticity from that data. What you then do to then say, okay, well, what would be the impact of applying a tax on Coca-Cola? This is how you kind of do modeling studies, essentially, it's moving on this. Is you say, well, let's imagine with that one data point, we also know that if you, you know, it's going to, by definition, go through the, the origin, because if you don't change the price, you presume purchases don't change. You've just got this straight line that you can draw. And you can say, okay, if I continue out that straight line, then I can predict what's going to happen if we start taxing at 20% to get a 16% change. But it's a complete assumption that this is going to be the way that, that people's uh, behaviour changes. It could easily be a line looks something like this, starts tailing away the size of the effect, or, um, or this, you know, people could react more as the price changes increase. It's, it's just a complete assumption. People generally do the same as well, which is to say... Uh, they assume that anything that happens on this side of the line is replicated the same way on this side of the line, so that the taxes and subsidies are essentially equivalent to each other. But we've got very little evidence that that's the case. So um, I'm just kind of wrapping up now. I'm going on modelling studies. These are some results. I just wanted to kind of show how kind of modelling studies can then kind of work through. So this is a result from one of our papers in the BMJ, looking at what would happen if you put a 20% tax on sugar-sweetened beverages using exactly the method that I just criticised. Um, so I'm, you know, nice and honest about it. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, you set up your demand system over here, saying, okay, how are people going to react? So you choose what alternatives people can have 
in the system rather than just saying let anyone have any systems. You say, okay, we're going to say when you put a, 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 a tax on regular soft drinks, then people are going to choose to replace it with your diet drinks or uh, these are kind of squashes, or they might change to uh, milk and fruit juices and things like this. And what we found using uh, panel data to kind of uh, produce our price elasticities was that our best estimate was that if you put a 20% tax on sugar sweetened beverages, then you reduce sugar sweetened beverage consumption by about 15%, and you get some compensation by increases in, in diet soft drinks by about 7%. This, by the way, is why the, 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 the drink industry is really, really negative towards soft, uh, sugary drinks taxation because they don't get all of their consumption back through diet drinks. They get kind of about half of it back. Uh, but there's also some increase in milk and fruit juice, which of course has calories in it as well. So as a result, when you put all of that into in place, across the uh, average person in the population, you get a reduction of about four calories per day in consumption, which then when you look at how that would affect BMI curves, it works out to say, well, you get 180,000 less obese people. So even that kind of small change shifts uh, a lot of people over the line. This really is a, is a feature of numbers though. If you look at how the obesity curve changes, you'll see on here, these, these are the obesity curves under the baseline of the scenario. There's actually two curves on here. One, what would happen in the normal situation, two, what would happen in the scenario. They're basically overlapping each other. You're having very little influence on the total BMI curve, okay? So even though you can get big numbers generated at the end of it, I'm not in slightest saying that these taxes aren't worthwhile doing because all the health interventions are about small shifts. It's about small adding up and making uh, additional health benefits. But these are not, by any means, a golden bullet that's just going to solve obesity. Um, I'm just going to do this in my last slide, which is uh, one of the things that people say about health-related food taxes is that they are regressive, which is absolutely true. Uh, a straight tax on food is, by definition, going to be uh, regressive. Everyone's going to eat. Poor people are going to spend more on that tax than rich people. In the same way that um, tobacco taxes are regressive and alcohol taxes are regressive, health-related food taxes would also be regressive. However, if you go back to a revenue-neutral scenario, where any money that you generate by the tax, you then plough into uh, subsidising fruit and vegetables, they don't necessarily have to be regressive. So this is some data from, uh, again, Synex Med et al, where they just did some scenario analyses looking at the, uh, the, the effect of a revenue-neutral scenario on the price of the diet. Um, so basically, they increase the price of unhealthy food, reduce the price of healthy food. And basically what happens, because... Poorer people are more price sensitive. They react to the change in the price more than richer people. So they say, okay, well, I'm going to reduce my consumption of this and I'm going to move over and, and, and consume more of this cheaper food. And so they can actually move into a situation where the diet actually becomes slightly cheaper. The richer people don't care about the fact that, um, well, care less that the price of their food is changing, so they just tend to stick more with just the, uh, the consumption pattern that they had before, and they get an increase in price of their diet. So, in a revenue-neutral scenario, you can change it from being regressive to being progressive. So, really, in terms of conclusions, what I was trying to say is that, you know, health-related food taxes are definitely going up the political agenda. More and more countries are trying them on the basis of evidence which is not of the highest kind of paradigm in terms of, uh, um, um, kind of how you would assess the effectiveness of interventions. By their nature, you can't really do these kind of... Um, very robust study designs to, to look at their, the evidence of their effectiveness. Problems with natural experiments in terms of signal-to-noise ratio, but that, like I say, is beginning to be overcome. I think it'll be interesting in time, I think over the next year or two, we'll see more and more evidence coming out about how taxes that have been implemented in different countries around the world, how effective they've been. That's really all I want to say, so thank you very much.